Our passage this morning uh, comes from 1 Samuel 13. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures with you, we'd encourage you to, uh, to turn to them. If not, you can follow along in the bulletin uh, or on the screens uh, behind me as well. Um, I don't know if you were like me on Thanksgiving, but I watched some football. Uh, that seems to be the thing that a lot of people like to do on Thanksgiving. Uh, but I don't know if you noticed, during the football games, they released, uh, uh, Disney released a new trailer uh, for the newest version of The Lion King. And uh, we were all in the room, we were gathered around watching the television when this came on, and uh, Beck and I immediately got pretty excited because uh, The Lion King was a really popular movie when we were uh, growing up. And at one point, we had the opportunity to, um, uh, to go to the Hippodrome and to see The Lion King live, which was just uh, an amazing experience. And so we were really surprised when this new trailer came along. Our kids didn't know anything about it. They didn't know what this was. So it'll be a Lion King for them, a new version for them. Uh, but it got me thinking, what has made this story uh, so significant? What has made it so uh, successful that we don't mind telling this story over and over and over again uh, throughout the generations? Because it really is a, a kind of a beautiful, enduring story. But when you think about it, the, the Lion King is really a story about a boy who was born to be a king and who would eventually come and make right all the things that have gone wrong, at least in his world. And I think that story is so enduring because it echoes the true story of the gospel, which is itself the story of an unlikely king born in unlikely circumstances and a king who's come to rescue us from our greatest problems. And so uh, this Advent season, what we're doing is we're looking at this concept of kingship all throughout the Scriptures, especially uh, in the Old Testament Scriptures, and we see how all of these kings were looking forward to the coming of the true king that we see in Jesus Christ. Because make no mistake, the birth of Jesus Christ was the birth of the true king, the king that our hearts most desire. And so if you were with us last week, uh, we looked at the story of Samuel uh, being approached by God's people. And they approached Samuel the prophet, who was the spiritual leader of the people at that point. And they said, Samuel, we, want, we don't want to be ruled by God anymore. We want to be ruled by a king. You see, part of their design was to be a theocracy, to be a, a people that were ruled by God. But they looked at all the other nations and they said, we want kings just like them. We would rather be just like them, no different than them. And so Samuel concedes. By the will of God, he concedes. You see, the people, they didn't want to be unique. They didn't want to be different. And maybe more importantly, they no longer wanted to have to live by faith. They wanted to be able to live by sight, just like all the other people around them. And so the first king of Israel, the first king of God's people, is a man named Saul. And what we learn very quickly is that he looked the part of a king. He was really tall. He was really handsome. When everybody looked at Saul, they said, that guy, that guy is our king. But at the end of the day, he winds up being a terrible king. In fact, after only about three years into his kingship, God had already removed his favor away from Saul. And the story this morning from 1 Samuel 13 tells about one of those stories in the life of Saul. So this is 1 Samuel 13. I'm going to be reading from verses uh, 5 uh, through verse 15. 
And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, "'Bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings,' and he offered the burnt offering." As soon as he'd finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, "'What have you done?' And Saul said, "'When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, "'Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord.' So I forced myself." And offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom of Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went from Gilgal. The rest of the people went after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray these words from Psalm 24, asking for your illumination. Make known to us your ways, O Lord. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of salvation. For you, we wait all day long. Amen. So all week, I've spent uh, my week in the life of Saul. This was the, only, the passage I picked to preach on out of his entire life, and the Scriptures talk a lot about Saul. Uh, really, First Samuel, starting in chapter 9 all the way through uh, chapter 31, talk about the life of Saul. And the thing I pulled away most from looking at his life this week was that Saul's biggest problem, the biggest thing that really characterized his life and his kingship was something that we can really relate to. And his greatest issue was fear. It was fear. And I thought about that in our culture today. If, you've, if you look into the psychological world and our cultural world, there seems to be a, a mounting amount of fears that are out there. Uh, there's all sorts of phobias and neuroses that seem to be uh, developed day in and day out, and people have all sorts of weird fears and neuroses, and it's always interesting uh, to hear about them. But I think at the end of the day, all the fears kind of boil into two categories. One is the fear of being hurt physically, okay? We, uh, last night, our kids got an opportunity to see Santa Claus, right? And uh, three out of the four kids were excited about this prospect. One was not and because she was fearing physically for her life when she saw this man dressed up bizarrely, okay? And so we all have some of those fears, fears of being hurt physically. 
But there's also fears of being hurt emotionally as well. And I never considered myself to be necessarily a fearful person, but then I started having kids, and I I thought about the challenges that they were going to face. And immediately I started being captured by all these kind of internal emotional fears, not just for myself, but for my kids and my family as well. And so we all know what it's like to have fears, to have different types of things that we are afraid about. And we also realize that often what we do is driven by those fears. We don't always like to admit it, but often those fears drive our behavior. They drive how we act. And of course, if all that is true, then those fears certainly impact us spiritually as well. They do things to us. And I think one of the things, one of the spiritual things that those fears do to us is that at the end of the day, fear makes our circumstances look bigger than God. Fear makes whatever circumstances we are dealing with seem bigger than the power of God. Our passage talks about uh, Saul's first military offensive, okay? He's, he had a good success defensively, and that did a good job rallying the kingdom around him. So he got a certain amount of confidence. He said, I'm going to take it to the Philistines. So he musters up an army of about 2,000 men, and he draws them up into battle before the Philistines, and he looks across the line and realizes that his forces are severely lacking because the Philistines have mustered their troops as well. And verse 5 tells us 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand of the seashore. So in every way, Saul is outmatched. The Philistines were superior in every way, technologically, skillfully. Uh, They had superior weaponry. And of course, Saul in that moment is captured by fear. Because he is captured by fear, his people, his troops are also captured by fear as well. There, There are parts in the verses that say they were hiding in graves in tombs and cisterns, in caves, because they were so afraid. And many of them were deserting Saul at that moment. They were running away. Now, don't get me wrong. Saul's circumstances were big, and they were very scary. But what he forgot in that moment was that his God was bigger. And because he forgot that, he was captured by fear. You see, in many ways, this was Saul's problem from the very beginning. If you go back to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9, he is anointed king by Samuel the prophet, and then Samuel draws the whole nation together in this great dramatic moment where he wants to, to unveil this new king for the people of Israel. And so the whole nation gathers together, and he's about to unveil Saul as their king. And it's, I, I imagine he calls Saul's name, and no one comes. Saul is MIA. He's gone. Where is he? They find him hiding in the luggage because he is so scared. He is so captured by fear. You see, the the circumstances of being Israel's first king scared him to death. And then think forward to the narrative of David and Goliath. We all often think about David and Goliath and David walking out matching this huge giant. But whose job really was it to go out and match that giant? It was Saul's job, but he wasn't there. Why? Because he was captured by fear. You see, time and time again in Saul's life, he had the opportunity to trust in God's provision and lead the people effectively, but he missed that opportunity because he was captured by fear. 
So I want you to think for a minute about whatever it is that captures your heart in fear right now. What is it that keeps you awake at night? What is it that causes knots in your stomach? What is it that preoccupies your mind? And ask yourself this, is that circumstance too big for God? Because what often happens is that fear makes our circumstances instead look bigger than our God. But what we also see is that fear is connected often to pride, and pride often takes matters into its own hands. And we see that in Saul's uh, story here as well. You see, God had prescribed all sorts of patterns and procedures when it came to offering sacrifices and when it came to warfare and how to engage in war. And in this case, Saul was supposed to wait for the prophet in order to perform the necessary sacrifices before Saul was going to engage in battle. And those sacrifices were the job of the prophet, and it was that prophet's job alone. No one else was allowed to do it. And so what Saul needs to do is he's got to wait for that prophet. And our passage tells us he waits and he waits and he waits some more. And as he's waiting, his military force is starting to get sick of waiting as well. One by one, they start to walk away and desert Saul. So he is just left there with his fears. He's trying really hard to wait and do the right thing. Uh, He's trying to keep the morale up with all of his troops. But Samuel still has not come. And so, as days go by, Saul makes a decision. He makes a decision to take matters into his own hands. He performs the sacrifice. He does the thing that only the prophets were allowed to do. And then it's as if in mid-stride, or really the passage says, as soon as he's done, who shows up? Samuel, the prophet, shows up. He arrives, and Saul is most likely literally caught red-handed doing the thing he was not supposed to do. And so he does what we do. He blames shifts. He, he makes all sorts of religiously sounding excuses to excuse his behavior. But at the end of the day, he has sinned, and the price of that sin is his kingship. Samuel announces that his kingship has now been removed from him. You see, what happened is that his fear drove him to just do something to just take matters into his own hands. And what ends up happening is by taking matters into his own hands, he just creates a bigger mess for himself. And friends, this is what fear does to us, interestingly enough, sometimes. It weirdly overinflates our own arrogance and in our pride. And instead of, of waiting in faith for God to act in the midst of our circumstances, We try to become our own little gods, and we try to execute our own will in the process. See, we overinflate our ability. We take matters into our own hands. And I don't know about you, but I know for me, inevitably when I do that, I make a bigger mess than I had at the beginning. This pattern uh, will repeat itself in Saul's life as well. Later on, Uh, Saul comes under the threat of the Philistines once again. And it says in 1 Samuel 28 that he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And so he does the right thing. He inquires of God what he ought to do, but this time God is not answering. God is remaining silent. 
And so once again, Saul's fears drive him to take matters into his hands once again. And instead of waiting on the Lord, he disguises himself and he goes and consults with a median or a witch from Endor. And in the process, of course, he makes a bigger mess of things. And friends, that's what our pride always does to us. It overinflates our picture of ourselves. And sadly, unfortunately, this becomes our typical reaction. Our typical reaction to fear becomes pride because it drives us to something. Fear drives us to pride. And as it drives us to pride, in the process, it drives something else out. And that's the other thing that we see in Saul's life, that his fear drove out It drove pride in, but it drove out his faith and obedience. Perhaps uh, Saul's greatest fear uh, came in 1 Samuel 15. Once again, another military chapter, another military engagement, and Saul goes and fights against the Amalekites, and he's given one instruction. God tells him to devote everything to destruction. Take nothing back for yourself. And of course, Saul engages in battle. Uh, He has a wonderful military victory, but he looks at all the nice possessions of the Amalekites and says, let me at least take the best of what they have as spoil. Let me keep it for myself. And in so doing, he directly disobeys the commands of God. Once again, the prophet Samuel approaches Saul confronts him about what he's done. Again, there's lots of blame shifting, lots of religiously sounding excuse making, but, silent, but finally Saul confesses and what he says is important. He says this, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your works. Why? Because I feared the people and disobeyed the voice of God. You see, in fear, Saul obeyed the people rather than God. And this story becomes an example to all of us that fear drives out faith and it often drives out obedience as well. And so fear does a lot of things to us. It makes our circumstances look bigger than God. It is often connected to our pride. It drives out faith. It drives out obedience. So again, the question becomes for us, what are we afraid of? What are you afraid of? What in your life right now is keeping you awake? What is stressing you out? What is creating those knots in your stomach? And what ought we do with all of these fears that plague us? Well, I think the key is this. I think this is what the Scriptures teach. The key is to approach these things not with fear, but to approach them with faith. And that's a wonderfully sounding thing, but how do you do that, right? How can you and I approach these things with faith rather than with fear? Well, we can do it because of this. We can do it because faith in the true King ultimately drives out fear. Faith in the true king ultimately drives out fear. You know what one of humanity's greatest problems is, is this. One of humanity's greatest problems is that we are often afraid of the wrong things. We fear other people's disapproval. We fear things like rejection or lack of success. 
We are often captured by the fear of tragedy or circumstances, but most people that we rub shoulders with are blissfully unaware of what we should really be afraid of, of the thing that we should really be afraid of, because the gospel tells us that the worst problem, the worst circumstances that each and every person faces is the problem of sin and death. That outweighs all of our other problems put together, that each and every person faces the challenge, the problem of sin and death. The gospel tells us that each one of us stand condemned for our rebellion against God. And we react to that in pride as well. We try to take matters into our own hands to try to make life work on our own terms, to to earn our way back into God's good behavior. But at the end of the day, your disobedience, my disobedience, condemns each and every one of us before a holy God. In many ways, that should be the most healthy fear that everyone should experience. But the gospel doesn't leave us there, because the gospel teaches that God sends us a king, and that king came to cast out what should be our greatest fear. Because the gospel tells us in love, our unlikely king was born to Mary and Joseph in an unlikely town in an unlikely time. In love, Jesus, our King, lived amongst us, His creation. In love, our King was rejected. He was scorned. He was mocked. He was beaten. In love, He offered Himself, allowed Himself to be executed as a common uncommon criminal. And in love, our King, by doing so, secured the greatest victory on our behalf, the victory of sin and death. You see, friends, this King can handle fear. In fact, 1 John 4 says this, powerful words, there is no fear in love. Why? Because perfect love casts out fear. The psalmist in Psalm 46 looked ahead to this king who would come and would cast out all fears. He wrote this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling." Zephaniah, the prophet, he talked about this coming king as well. He says this about Jesus, the coming king. He said, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said in Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. You see, Saul was captured by fear. He's a lot like you and I are. And that is why God sent us a perfect king. That is why God sent us Jesus. And being perfectly loved by Jesus casts out all of our fears. Because faith in him and his perfect sacrifice on your behalf casts out all fear. And so, friends, this Christmas season, as one unknown author wrote, 
both faith and fear may sail into your harbor, but allow only faith to drop anchor. Faith in that true king, faith in Jesus Christ. He is the king that our hearts most desire. He is the king that dispels our deepest fears. Let's pray.